Welcome to the All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley's Sermon Podcast. Today is the 20th Sunday after Pentecost, and we hear from me, Emily Hansen Kern, as I preach from the lectionary, which this week was Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. The audio quality is a little poor, so bear with us. But you can find more information about All Souls or sermons by All Soulsians on our homepage, which is allsoulsparish.org. My first thought is, that got out of control quickly. Uh, Weeping and gnashing of teeth for the wrong outfit at a wedding where the host just burned up the whole city because nobody would attend his party. I, I mean, all of the king's reactions are a little much for these circumstances. Burning up the city, killing people in the streets for the invited, when they uh, RSVP'd their regrets. But eternal damnation for the wrong attire feels a little over the top, don't you think? Like perhaps he just hit his limit? Or that, either. Or the king is a psychopath. And perhaps we could just write this story off if it were maybe, say, a letter from Paul to a particular church. Perhaps. But that's not what this is. Unfortunately, this is a parable attributed to Jesus. And so a parable for which we must contend. But because this is a parable attributed to Jesus, whatever seems to be the clear and surface level answer, especially the one that supports the comfortable and the powerful, is not likely the case. So let's contend. In all the commentary I read this week, which was so many, (laughs) I found one common idea. And that is to read this parable as an allegory. And while problematic, and we'll get to that in just a moment, it does make some sense. These are stories that the early followers of Jesus retold and passed along and reinterpreted in their own context and time. And so we're reading a story that was written out of trauma. Well after Jesus had been crucified and the temple had been destroyed. The Jewish people, the writer of this gospel, were trying to make sense of this devastation. And they were looking for a reason, a hope, where to go from here. These were also people who carried stories with them, like the one we read in Exodus, of a God who tests and who destroys, whose mind could be changed if only the prophets were believed and followed. And so in this allegory, the king then is God, the son is Jesus, the slaves who are sent out are the prophets of the Old Testament, the first round of invitations are the Pharisees and scribes, and this second round of invitations, the Gentiles. In this version of the story, the Pharisees reject the prophets and reject Jesus, so God allows and perhaps even calls the orders for the destruction of the temple and all its inhabitants as an act of punishment to the religious leaders for rejecting Jesus. The floodgates are now open, and all may come to God. In reading this parable as an allegory, this story of the outfit fiasco is sort of left on the fringes, though. Some think that it was originally maybe two parables, and others have made lots of guesses as to what this wedding robe could have been and what it could have represented. 
What we do know is this little epilogue to the parable is only found in Matthew. So whatever's going on here is part of Matthew's particular agenda. And like I said, there is some sense to reading the, the parable as an allegory, especially when you think about the perspective of the writer of Matthew, trying to make sense of the trauma and the loss he has experienced. But reading this parable as an allegory also has a few things that are downright problematic. Reading it this way sets up a God who is brutal, who's petty and kind of terrible, and possibly suffering from extreme mental illness. This may well be what the writer of the Gospel of Matthew believed about God, but a careful look at how this parable is set, is set up throws a different lens on the whole thing. Tucked into the opening line, the translators, at least of the NRSV, translate the Greek verb homois. I probably just totally butchered that, so take the Greek class in a few weeks about this letter, word, uh, into the English as the word to compare. It's contentious, but let's roll with it. This leaves us with Jesus saying that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. What if this is a parable of what we are to compare the kingdom of God against? If this were an allegory, we would have Jesus saying something like, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who threw a wedding banquet for his son. After all, this is a common refrain by Jesus when talking about the kingdom of heaven. But this parable is unlike so many of the others about the kingdom of heaven. There's no seed that grows and is a home for many birds. There's no pearl that someone leaves all their belongings to go find. This is a parable has a very different tone. So let's go. If we're meant to look at this parable as something to compare the true kingdom of heaven against, then what is this kingdom of heaven like? Without going verse by verse to compare, but keeping with this idea of a feast, two things become clear to me. The first is that there is a generous, full of grace, perhaps even scandalous invitation given to this meal. And second, there is an expectation for those who attend. That is, that we show up in the right outfit. And so in reading around at different commentaries this week, I, I came across this line by Bart. Carl. <laughs> Not Simpson. I know, I'm so sorry. Uh, as he was responding to this epilogue of the parable, and Bart says this, in the last resort, it all boils down to the fact that the invitation is to a feast and that he who does not obey and come accordingly and therefore festively declines and spurns the invitation no less than those who are unwilling to obey and appear at all. Have you ever shown up to an event where you just couldn't get yourself to want to be there? That could be some of you in the pews right now. <laughs> or have you been asked to give something or do something, but you just couldn't get yourself to want to do it? Or did you then show up with a bad attitude because you didn't want to be there? Or worse, you stubbornly refused to engage with the party because you didn't want to be there? Oh, I have. 
<laughs> when I was a child, I was a master at this. I could will myself to stay in my what I thought was righteous anger for extended periods of time. I have vivid memories of just absolutely raging in my room alone, angry at my parents after having some outbursts at dinner. And I remember in my indignation continuing on for what felt like hours while my family was all laughing and enjoying dinner still at the table. And I could hear them from my bedroom. And after a period of time, I would cool off and want to join them so badly. But my pride and my stubbornness would persist. No, Emily, don't give in. I was committed to being angry. I speak of my child self in this way, but I am so capable of this now, still. That indignant child still lingers under the surface. And most often when I find that my stubbornness or unwillingness to participate is based out of a scarcity somewhere for me, usually these days for time, but sometimes for attention. I don't want to show up to that meeting, that party. I don't want to give my time for that one thing because I feel anxious about time. I'm worried that there won't be enough or because I don't feel seen or understood. But the call here isn't to attend at all costs or to participate at all costs or to give at all costs. That's the version of this story that the kingdom of God is being compared to. Instead, the version of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is perhaps trying to get us to see is one with attendance and participation and giving out of obedience, not obligation. And that's a fun word, obedience. It comes from the Latin, obedir, literally to listen, to submit, to give ear, to pay attention. It's a word that the monk Thomas Merton spoke often about. For him, obedience was deeply related to prayer. He wrote that prayer itself is obedience. Prayer is an act of surrender. It is essentially an act of surrender to God's love. And it's this surrender to God's love that feels so compelling to me. Like, what if in these moments when I feel that sense of obligation, or that dread of obligation, more like it, when I feel my stubbornness or my pride keeping me from something that I see others enjoying with freedom and joy, what if I could surrender to the love of God instead? What does that even mean? How do we do that? How do we put on the right outfit for the occasion? How do we, in the words of Bart, obey and come accordingly? Perhaps we listen. We pay attention to the voices around us and to the needs of those around us. We pick up our eyes and look around. Looking to Merton for help on this, in his book, Seeds of Contemplation, he says, do you think the way to contemplation, and I might say here the way to surrender, is found in the refusal of activities and works which are necessary for the good of others, but which happen to bore and distract you? Do you imagine that you will discover God by winding yourself up in a cocoon of spiritual and aesthetic pleasures instead of renouncing all of your tastes? and desires and ambitions and satisfactions for the love of Christ who will not even live within you if you cannot find God in other people. 
for me, it usually takes some outside force to get me there. Some jolt to my brain, someone calling me out, bringing my attention outside of myself and my circumstances. When I stay alone, it only festers. My vision only narrows, and I see myself find myself deep in my anxiety, grasping for what I think is the little that I have. But when called out of myself, I can start to let go and realize there will be enough. There will be enough time to get it all done. There will be enough money to make it all work. And so I think it means surrendering not what I have, but what I think I need giving up the things I'm holding on to, not necessarily physically or materially, though perhaps sometimes, but emotionally and spiritually. I think that's the posture of a surrendered life. It's where I want to be. It's the freedom I want to live in. And I think it's the freedom of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is trying to tell us about in this parable. Don't just show up and give because that's the expectation. That may be how it starts. It may be what gets you in the door of the party, but it's not the place to stay. And to really bring it home, I was thinking about this celebration, the stewardship celebration dinner we have coming up on the 29th of October. I want to show up knowing that I'm here and that I gave to this place out of a surrendered place in my heart, out of obedience, not out of obligation. I want to look around at dinner over there and the goofy game we're going to play over here after dinner and feel free. I want to feel joy, not envy and resentment and bitterness. And that's just so much more difficult to get to. I can show up to an event that I don't want to attend and I can keep to my stubbornness. I can even hide my bitterness that just, and just hang out by the food table. <laughs> I can be given a monetary number to give and just grin and bear it. But to change my attitude about being at the party, to give out of love and out of freedom, to give with grace and generosity is so much more difficult. And yet I think that's the comparison we're meant to make here. I think kingdom living is life lived as a participating guest. One who is not afraid to honor the occasion for what it is, has the grace of presence to let go of self to surrender what we have and what we're trying to hold on to. To show up in the right attire because that's what kind of party it is. The night will be at its best when we're all dressed up and partying.